0: I think the most important thing that I've realized is that the key to innovation and the key to growth is humility.
1: And welcome back to Off Record with your host, Corey Levy. Today, we speak to entrepreneur, founder, and chairman, Sean Radd who is best known for creating the revolutionary dating app Tinder, which has made more than 20 billion connections, garnered more than 50 million active users across 195 countries, making up the staggering $6 billion match group. In this week's episode, Sean talks about how he got into technology, he gives advice to non-technical people on how to get started to build great technology companies, he takes us back to the very moment the idea of Tinder was born, what he did to get it on the map, some early day controversies, the moment he knew it would be transformative to society and the evolution of its users. There's that and many more, we hope you enjoyed this week's episode of Off Record.
2: you, Sean, for joining the show today. My first question to you is how did you get involved in tech?
0: Thank you for having me, Corey. I wouldn't say I really got involved in tech because there was a passion for technology per se. It was more about a passion for solving problems I would see around me. And the best way to solve those problems was utilizing technology my first sort of technical endeavor was in college. I think I was in freshman year. And I was sitting in class, not paying attention, really, but really observing that all of my friends around me were on laptops. And they were switching back and forth between different applications to communicate. And this is sort of before mobile phones really consolidated all of our means of communication. I saw people were going from one email account in one browser to another email account, you know, they have this school email, their work email, and then they were on AIM to sort of sustain their legacy relationships. But then they were also using Gchat. And they were, for the most part, communicating with a similar set of individuals, just using all these different interfaces. And I thought that that was really inefficient. And it also, these different systems didn't play nice together. So that's where I came up with this idea for Orgo, which took all the different ways you communicated and not only put it into one place, but it found interesting integration points. This is pre-Gmail and pre-mobile. So a lot of the stuff we were doing at Orgo are sort of standard today. And I really didn't know what I had to do to build this thing. I just sort of had an idea. And I needed someone to build it. So I went to the computer science department and convinced one of the faculty members to allow me to send an email to the entire CS department because back when I was in college, Blackboard just sort of emerged. And Blackboard had embedded mailing lists. Like You had sort of restricted access but you're allowed to email people in your class, or if you're part of the student body, you can email people in the department. So I convinced one of the faculty members to allow me to email, I think it was about a thousand CS students at USC where I was going, and basically just asking for help. And I learned along the way, as I was sort of building this product and this solution with some of the CS students that got together to help me, I started learning about tech from them and learning about systems and also interface design. I think I took a crash course in both tech and Interface design because what we were doing, particularly as kind of my first endeavor in technology was pretty ambitious in the sense that you're not only taking all these different interfaces and integrating them into one simple interface, but you're also working with some pretty complex technologies. I mean, email, synchronous and asynchronous messaging is not only mission critical. So you, you sort of have to get it right out of the gate, but they're also pretty complex systems to scale. So it was uh, interesting to start there. I kind of started in the deep end.
2: What would your advice be to the non-technical listeners that want to get involved in tech or are afraid to because they don't have any domain expertise? I think people
0: get lost in the platform or how they're delivering the solution. They get lost in that a little too much. So like I'll hear people come and tell me I have an idea for a mobile app. Well, just framing it that way is a problem because a mobile app, that's just the delivery mechanism. That's not an idea. And I think people need to focus on understanding the problem, understanding the customer more, empathizing with the customer, and then kind of letting everything come after that. I've always been on the mindset that like, you know, the hard part is actually really clarifying the problem, having a clear vision on how you want to solve it. And then the easier part for me has always been finding the people or the tools and the resources that can help build that. I think you first need to start with an understanding of what you're building and then a very high level understanding of what are the different tools you need to put together in order to build it. Once you've achieved that point, I think finding the people and finding the tools, as long as you're able to articulate it well and you're able to Convey passion, I've always found that people will join the cause. So I think the harder part is having something that people gravitate towards and want to help you on. Once you have that, getting help is easier.
2: How many different projects or companies did you start before Tinder? I started Orgu,
0: my first company, which was the Unified Communications one. Then I started Adly, which was, we sort of pioneered the concept of sponsored content and social media. So we were the first to sort of go out there and look at celebrity tweets and celebrity social media content and look at that. Is actual quality content that deserves to be monetized, or the celebrity's time or the content creator's time deserves to be monetized. And then we created a network of 3000 celebrities and about 5000 advertisers, we were sort of the biggest in the space. And then after Adley, I sold Adley. And this is right when the iPhone came out, and I started becoming obsessed with mobile. And around that time, I was sort of just learning and experimenting with different things. So probably in that period, I probably built like three things, but never really launched them because they never felt right once I was able to sort of touch and feel them. And Tinder, in a way, was sort of the conclusion of a lot of the learning I was going through by experimenting with these other products.
2: What did you learn in your past projects that contributed to the success of Tinder?
0: I was really fascinated with this idea that the mobile device can empower you in the real world. Desktop computers, laptops, they're really devices that you would use in work mode or entertainment mode at your home or at your office. And they didn't really travel with you, whereas the mobile device went with you to the coffee shop, it was always on. And I was constantly looking for different ways where you could build applications to kind of empower the real world. And the thing that I was experiencing or struggling with in my life and my day to day life was meeting new people. It was often the case that there was a girl or someone that I wanted to get to know, but I lacked sort of the courage to walk up to them. I was nervous that I would get rejected. I think these two things came together to inspire the idea for Tinder. When I was sitting in a coffee shop one day, I was with a bunch of friends and there was a girl across the room that I really wanted to talk to. And... I lack the courage, my friends lack the courage, this is a common occurrence people probably experience every day, and she looked at me across the room, and I looked at her, and in that moment, it was almost like an invite, she was giving me a signal that she's interested, and I was giving her a signal, and as I realized that that took away the anxiety, the pressure, the fear of rejection, then I became obsessed with the idea of how can I turn that moment, that behavior, that sort of happens, that real, world behavior that is natural, but it's not a common occurrence. How can I make that a more common occurrence as sort of the
2: cure to meeting new people? That was the impetus of Tinder. And what was the very first step you took right after that to start the company.
0: So Tinder was something that I literally mocked up and designed and presented in a hackathon in 24 hours. This was weeks after the coffee shop moment. I didn't really have a chance to sit down and put my ideas on paper, but the hackathon gave me a sort of a forum to do that. And we designed the whole thing in 24 hours, won a hackathon that we were part of, but then tabled it because I had a team working on another project called Cartify that we were working on. And Tinder was something that I was so passionate about, but we didn't really have the time or resources to build because we were distracted by something else. And then eventually, about three months later, we had some resources free up and I kind of pushed the team to work on building Tinder nights and weekends. And it wasn't something that we thought at the moment could change the world or as revolutionary. It was really just something that I almost saw as an experiment and a solution to my problems and my friends' problems. We very quickly learned, just amongst the few hundred friends that we told to use it once we launched, we very quickly learned that it had transformative benefits and that's when we got rid of cardify we sort of said we're going to focus on tinder because tinder really 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 was at least impacting the lives of our friends around us and we figured that if it added value to our lives that there would be millions of people like us that could benefit from
2: it i think i remember getting that tech from your co-founder Was that like october <laughs> 2012 or something when, when yeah. you know, first launched yeah it was like august or september I
0: think the text you might have got is either download this and thank me later or find out who likes you. (laughs) I think it was the latter.
2: Was there a particular moment in time that you knew Tinder was going to be
0: massive? Justin Mateen, my co-founder, I think he was sort of the brains behind seeding Tinder with the right people and making sure the product resonated with at least college students, which is where who we were targeting. And we always told ourselves that the true test to see whether or not Tinder can impact or add value to people's lives was if college students who are otherwise in a very social environment where they can very easily meet new people, if they found value in it, then we figured everyone else could find value in it. So we focused on colleges and I think the moment where I really realized that Tinder was potentially transformative was when we launched it at USC and what we started seeing was even amongst our friends and social groups that people who knew of each other, kind of would go to parties together, who liked each other but never really expressed that desire to go out on a date or do something, were now being connected in Tinder. So we kept hearing our friends tell us that a guy or a girl that they know of, but never really would have the ability to connect with in this way, we're now going on dates and sort of those stories that we would hear at a certain point became so prevalent in our lives that I was like, wow, this is top of mind for everyone around us. And this is almost like an addictive behavior. And they're getting so much recurring value out of this that people won't put it down. I mean, at one point, I think it was month four, we were looking at our metrics, and we had about a 90% Dow over Mal ratio, and people were using it every day. I mean, we had I think 80% of our audience used it 30 days in a row, which was just remarkable I mean, for any application, having that level of engagement was sort of unheard of. So at that point, we were like, okay, this thing has transformative benefits to society. And that's when I sort of knew that everything, the data, the sort of qualitative and quantitative data was pointing in the
2: right direction. That's wild. That's really cool. And what were some of the early things that you and your co-founder did to get attention for Tender? You got to first start with a
0: unique experience that I think does a very effective job of connecting people, right? And we had that. We saw that. But we also knew that the network that we were building was just as important as the product itself because our product was people. If we're not showing you the right people or the most relevant people, then you're not going to be engaged on the product. So we really focused on growing Tinder amongst groups of friends so that when you open the app, you not only... Heard about it from a friend, which increased, I think, your desire to try it out and really explore it. But you saw people that were somewhat acquaintances or people you saw around campus, and the network was very strong. So what we did was we went from location to location, identified who the most influential individuals in those places were. And you know, it's it's sort of the person that everyone looks up to on a campus. Or let's say in Los Angeles, you sort of have the these social media influencers or these socialites that people look up to either because of their fashion tastes or they're sort of an authority on something. And what we did is we focused on convincing those individuals that Tinder was a great application and could add value to their lives. And we just let them spread the word. So we didn't incentivize them to spread the word. We didn't encourage them to spread the word. All we did is educate them on the benefits of Tinder. And and again, the product was so good and the network was so strong that it allowed the word of mouth to sort of happen. So we sort of focused on the foundation of the building first, which we knew early on was very important. Got it. And
2: I wanna talk a little bit about controversy. Do you have any stories in the early days of Tinder, either first hand or second hand, where there was some sort of positive controversy that got your attention? You know, Airbnb had that moment in time where someone wrecked the house and destroyed the house. That was a very pivotal moment within the company. Was there anything like that at Tinder? a lot of
0: how we made decisions and who we became was again a result of our experiences and I think one of the things that we really believed in wholeheartedly was this idea that Tinder had to grow organically amongst sort of Tight communities. And, you know, one controversial decision we had to make was at a moment in time, we were our major investor was the Match Group. The Match Group sort of gave us the ability to promote Tinder to a wide audience that they had across all their legacy products. And we decided not to do that. We decided against that distribution. In fact, there were a lot of moments where we had the opportunity to get wide set distribution. Another example is Kim Kardashian wanted to work with us and promote Tinder. But we actually said no to those opportunities, and that was very controversial. Why did y'all say no? The reason we said no is because we were very set on allowing the product to grow organically, because what we knew is that if someone downloaded the product because they got an email, or they saw a post from Kim Kardashian, and they went into it without a high level of intent, that they would just download it, create a profile, and maybe delete the app. And that that profile would be stagnant in the ecosystem, and would actually diminish the value in the ecosystem. So we really wanted quality over quantity in the early days because we wanted the network to sort of build and we wanted a strong network. And I think that decision, you know, it was a hard one to sort of say no to free distribution. That decision, I think, was critical in keeping a healthy ecosystem, which ultimately led to an effective product. So I think just because you have an opportunity to do something, to distribute a product, to work with a partner, a lot of the times you need to sort of step back and assess and and sort of... Of play that narrative out and kind of predict whether or not in the long run, it will get you the results that you want. So one of the hardest things to do at a company, at any company, yet alone a company that's growing as fast as we were growing, is sort of prioritize resources and develop an ethos around how you make decisions and what opportunities you say yes to versus no to. And I think one of the things we did really well was filter through the noise and filter through the myriad of companies, investors, and everyone who wanted to work with us because we were growing so fast. Everyone sort of wanted a piece of it. And we were really able to sort of stay grounded and focus on only the partnerships and the opportunities that added value and were sort of fit within our mindset and frame of how we thought Tinder needed to grow. And it's really hard. It's hard to say no to money. It's hard to say no to distribution. And I think those are the moments that really developed our culture around decision making and brought the team closer together because we were able to make those tough decisions together. What's something controversial
2: today that you think will be commonplace tomorrow?
0: Well, I'll tell you something that I wouldn't say is controversial, but I would say is something that's overlooked, which is we talk a lot about diversity and inclusion in the sense of human rights. And that is absolutely, I think, an important discussion. And But what we don't talk enough about is framing the discussion around how diversity and inclusion actually helps companies succeed. They're actually pivotal and necessary to the success of a company. I think the bottom line is if you aren't taking advantage of the vo- Voices around the table, And you're not letting each voice sort of add maximum value. And you're not creating an environment where every idea is either heard and rejected, and people can learn why we're not kind of doing something or accepted. And people can sort of learn that every voice is valuable, and that they can contribute, I think you're doing a disservice to the organization. So you know, one thing that we really focused hard on at Tinder is this idea of a very bottoms up organization, where I really viewed my job as a CEO to listen to the organization, listen to our users and find the thread across all these different ideas and find the common theme and just edit and get everyone focused around a concept that they're all talking about but don't really realize they're all kind of saying the same thing. And even though, at least in my experience, bottoms-up organizations find the greatest success, I think we look at top-down organizations, we look at sort of the heroes in tech, whether it's Steve Jobs or whoever, and we sort of have this idea of them as being top-down. Like, they're the visionary, they, they go up Mount Sinai, come down with some massive vision, and everyone's executing that vision. The reality is, is companies actually don't work that way, particularly the bigger that you get. You know, when you have thousands of opportunities, when you have this massive ecosystem like Tinder, you really need to listen to the people who are on the front line you really need to listen to your users and your decisions should be guided by what the team is seeing, what your users are seeing, and what they want, not by some guru visionary that is coming up with all the ideas. Because I think the reality is that great ideas don't form that way. And also, great ideas are very iterative, but also great organizations don't depend on one person. They depend on teams. So if one person decides to leave, the organization still needs to grow and function on its own. The things that we ideally realize as entrepreneurs and startups sort of growing our companies are often very untrue and, and very hurtful to the organization at scale. So I think that's something that I think we need to talk more about so young entrepreneurs can learn from that and really build inclusive environments, not only because it's the right thing to do, but it's what's needed for the company to grow.
2: Totally. So I have one more question about Tinder, and then I want to jump into some more questions about your life and how you manage it. But the one last question I have on Tinder is, It's often been, you know, talked about as, as y'all creating a hookup culture where where people are just looking for short term relationships. Like how, as a company and as individuals, have y'all navigated that?
0: Yeah. I mean, look, I always tell people that you can find whatever you're looking for on Tinder in the sense that we've probably created more marriages than any platform in history. And I'm, I look at the bar as a platform or your parents sort of making introductions as a platform. And I think there's no question that we've created more connections than any platform in history, but we've created more of everything, more marriages, more hookups, more friendships. There are business connections that happen on Tinder. And these are all things that stem out of connecting humans. We really focus on the first part of that. We focus on making the introduction. We don't judge, dictate, or frame what happens after that because it's not our mission and it's not what we set out to do. I mean, if you go back to the story that I told you, what the company really focuses on is destigmatizing that initial connection, allowing the connection to happen because there's so many connections that go unnoticed every single day. What happens after that is not our place to judge. You know, there's no messaging in the app There's no user experience that is optimized for a hookup, nor is there one that's optimized for a marriage. What the experience is optimized for is an introduction. What happens after that is up to the user. And the reality is everyone wants different things at different stages of their lives. You know, when you're in college, you're not necessarily looking to get married. And a lot of our users are, you know, they're 18 to 24 or were, and now they're, they're a little older, but uh, they've graduated since then. So I think our product is a result of the wants and desires of the audience. And those wants and desires are actually evolving. So what's interesting is a lot of, I think, the relationships that formed on Tinder, maybe as a hookup, because there were a bunch of college users who initially started using it, those relationships are maturing to become marriages. (laughs) And so whereas four years ago, we probably had more hookups than we did long-term relationships, I think just by virtue of the age group and the user base coming to age, those dynamics are changing the product hasn't changed, but the individuals and their desires have changed. So I think this idea that Tinder promotes something in society or dictates to our users what they should do is just wrong. Tinder is a platform that connects people. What people decide to do with that connection is completely up to them. And we never saw it as appropriate or our place to judge. Now, there's a limit, though. I mean, we've done a lot to really stop and come down hard on abusive or bad behavior. So we have some very complex algorithms and systems that detect any type of unwanted behavior on the platform. And that could be, you know, someone being a douchebag. And... And we very quickly curate and edit that out of the ecosystem. And about eight months ago, we launched a whole initiative around making sure our ecosystem was friendly and inclusive to the transgender community. And we noticed that transgender users were getting attacked on the platform. They're getting attacked on a lot of other platforms. And we came down on that extremely hard. And we reoriented the entire product to be inclusive of all genders. We built features that the transgender community were telling us that they They wanted to sort of not only prevent abuse, but also help them identify and find the person that they're looking for. So, you know, that's an example around how what we really believe in is that every person deserves to meet as many people as they sort of find necessary in order to find that one or sort of that meaningful connection. And what we really care about is creating quality, meaningful connections. What happens after we make that introduction? Again, it's up to the user. Everyone wants something different. right? Right. Well, I want to
2: talk real quick about you. Do you have any morning, afternoon, or evening routines?
0: Well, the one thing that I can't live without is meditating. <laughs> like, I have a lot coming at me on a daily basis. And I think being mindful and sort of in control allows me to really not get emotionally reactive towards any one thing and really look at the landscape of what I have to deal with during the day and prioritize the things that truly matter. So that you know, extra few seconds in my brain that allows me to kind of observe what's coming at me and calm down and really pick the things that I'm going to tackle today, I think are critical. So I start my day with first meditating, going through a gratitude exercise. So I actually sit down and write down, you know, the, all the things that I'm grateful for that morning. Because I think that sort of puts me in a in a very appreciative mindset, which is really important to me. Cause I think people kind of take things they have for granted. And if you constantly wake up and remind yourself how fortunate you are for everything. I think it starts your day off the right way. And then I'll write down the two or three things that I want to accomplish today. And I tackle those things. And I focus on that again, you know, it's not like I don't necessarily go back to that list throughout the day. But I think just writing it down the active consciously saying these are the of all the things that are coming at me today, these are the things that I care most about today, sort of level sets you and focuses all your energy on those three things versus diluting your energy across so many things and not allowing you to really master any of them. What are some of the things you're grateful for? It's different every day. I mean, you could be grateful for your morning coffee, or you could be grateful for your family or the roof over your head. Or, you know, I think for me, I have a lot of things to be grateful for. Thank God. And I think reminding yourself every day um, how all of
2: this and, you know, both the good and the bad is a gift is a very important exercise. What would your advice be to young people trying to figure out what they want to do with their lives?
0: I think the most important thing that I've realized is that the key to innovation and the key to growth is humility. So I think the misconception we have about successful people is that they're perfect, they're successful, they know what they're doing. I think the reality is that they're just like all of us. They sort of wake up every single day, they're still learning, they're still challenged. And the second that you lack humility and that you're not able to sort of say, I need to learn about something is the second you stop growing, is the second the organization stops growing. So you know, I think you see a lot of large organizations get jaded or stuck in their ways, they don't think independently and constantly question and approach things from a sort of a beginner's mind or state of humility that allows them to progress. So I think it's really important to sort of stay humble and stay hungry. And I know that That sounds obvious, but it's actually a very hard thing to do because your desire as an entrepreneur is to sort of look at yourself in the mirror and say, I got this. I can do this. I know everything and and whatnot. But I actually think you should look in the mirror and say, I'm good at a couple things and I kind of got this part of it, but I'm and clueless on this other part. And that's okay. Then you got to tell yourself and understand that it is okay not to be perfect. Because if you can approach it that way, and you can accept your imperfections, then you will actually learn and grow and the organization and your peers and everyone around you will grow with you. But if you're in denial about the things that you're not good at, or if you're setting the standard that you have to be perfect, and it's going to create so much pressure that it will crush you. So I think really relaxing and focusing on things that you love and not putting so much pressure on yourself to be perfect and know everything, to me is the key to growth and innovation.
2: How do you make hard decisions? Do you have any tactics?
0: One of the things that I do, and again, this is obvious, but I don't think people do an effective job with this, is I sort of write down my options. So when faced with a tough decision, where I start is first define what my desired outcome is. Then I sort of write down all the different options I have. And that requires, again, that requires you to be honest with yourself, right? Look at every option and then predict where it's going to play out. If you make that choice, where, how is it likely to end? What are the one, the two, the three ways that it can play out? And I think once I sort of run the exercise, um, I have more clarity and I sort of have conviction around one of those options. But I also think the other thing that I, I never do is walk into something saying, I know this is going to work or sort of have this level of that I think will mislead me or the organization because the reality is at any moment in time, you're making the best decision based on the information that you have. And the more information you get, the better decision you're going to make. But the reality is that information changes as you walk forward and the landscape changes. So you have to be agile, be willing to change. But any given moment in time, you have to assess your options and make the best decision with the information you have. And I have two last questions.
2: Number one is what couple of books or podcasts do you think ambitious young people should absolutely read or listen to right now?
0: Aside from yours, of course. Uh, <laughs> I love Tim Ferriss's podcast. I'm very selective. I don't listen to all of the podcasts, but I definitely pick and choose the ones that I think are talking about a topic I'm curious about. I love Reid Hoffman's new podcast, which is wonderful. As far as books, one of the things I, I love reading about and learning about is, I would say, human psychology. One of the things that I think you can't learn enough about is people. You're ultimately as an entrepreneur, in order to build successful products, you need to really understand your customer users. And in order to build a successful organization, you really need to understand the people around you, their strengths, their weaknesses, and put them in the right place. You need to empower them and put them in the right position where they can truly succeed and maximize their potential and talents. And that requires you to really understand the depths of people where they come from, why they sort of approach problems the way that they do. And, you know, a good way of doing that is learning about psychology, but another good way of doing that is also just reading about history. I mean, you look at pivotal moments in history. And if you can get down to the psyche of the individuals, who were they? Where did they come from? Why did they make the decision that they did? What sort of influences socially around them, influences in their upbringing, brought them to sort of think about make that decision and approach it the way they did? I think if you could get to the bottom of that and learn about people, it is probably the most valuable tool in building products and building companies. So I spent a lot of my time interacting with people and learning from interesting people, but also reading about great people in history, great moments in history, and sort of like what the inner workings were. What was behind the headline? Focusing on the headline is very easy. Understanding what went into creating the headline is I think where the lessons are.
2: Awesome, well thank you so much, Sean, for taking the time and joining on today's show. Awesome.
1: Thank you guys so much for listening. We hope you enjoyed this week's episode with Sean Rad. Thank you once again, Sean, for coming on the show. It was really helpful to hear about your insights on how a non-technical founder can build the next billion-dollar success how a revolutionary idea can come to fruition, and the process of marketing a game-changing idea, but also the evolution of relationships and growing with a platform's users. That was a very interesting piece. You can find all of his links in the description. You can also follow your host, Corey Levy, on Twitter, at Corey. Suggest what guests should come on next, and we have episodes coming out every Tuesday, so stay tuned, and we'll see you next week on Off Record.